Uh, Robert Perry, he is someone who broke one of the most important stories in this country's history, the Iran-Contra story. He broke it for the Associated Press and Newsweek in the 80s. He's a longtime investigative reporter. In 1995, he started the first web-based investigative magazine, ConsortiumNews.com. I guess I should start off by just saying that um, I've been a journalist in this city since 1977. I've worked for the Associated Press and Newsweek and Public Broadcasting's Frontline, as well as um, starting ConsortiumNews.com and as an investigative website. And I have to say that in all these years, I can't think of a time when there has been a groupthink as single-minded as the one we've seen over the past year or so regarding the Ukraine crisis. And this is not to say that there weren't some pretty awful and destructive group things that preceded this one. But I've just never seen a moment when so little questioning has occurred about something as important as whether or not there will be a second Cold War, whether there will be a possible nuclear confrontation between the United States and Russia that might conceivably end all life on the planet. There's been a, a cavalier attitude, and not just uh, where you might expect it on some of the TV shows, but you've seen it at the very heart of the most prestigious uh, news organizations in the United States. I would say most particularly the New York Times, but certainly the Washington Post and others fall into this. Now, as I said, I came to Washington in 1977, and that was a time when, um, it's hard to say that that was a golden age of American journalism, but it was a time when the American press corps asked tough questions, did not accept easy government answers, when uh, the press broke through on many government lies, whether it be the Pentagon Papers, the publication of, of, of the secret history of the Vietnam War, whether it was not accepting uh, Richard Nixon's uh, uh, blasé explanations for the Watergate break-in, uh, whether, whether it was penetrating into the Central Intelligence Agency's secrets, the uh, so-called family jewels. And so we had seen how the American press corps could work and how I would say our founding fathers envisioned it. Uh, this is not to say things were perfect, they were far from it, but it was a time when the press understood, I think, the basic responsibility they had to the American people, the implicit agreement that was in the First Amendment, that it's our job to ask those kinds of questions. And even if people don't like us for doing it, even if they call us names for doing it, that, that's still our job. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abigail Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to our double whammy podcasts over the holidays. We did uh, actually four in the course of just a couple weeks. So um, thank you so much for all your feedback, for listening, for sharing. We really uh, thrive on your guys' feedback for our content and all of your donations. We are super appreciative of all the support, you guys. Yeah, we were very, very happy um, and thankful that we reached our Patreon goal. Thanks to your help, we will be releasing four podcasts a month now. This podcast you're listening to now is our our fourth one, our final one for the month of January. You know, we're trying, we're still trying to figure out a consistent release schedule. That's probably going to be 
not happening at first, but we will guarantee that there will be four episodes per month. We also would like to get feedback from you. If you are a Patreon donor, um, there we, we occasionally will run a poll on our Patreon page um, that are just for people who have donated uh, to give us feedback on what you would like to see as a donor. Um, and then additionally, um, we would like to start thanking uh, Patreon Patreon donors at the end of our podcast. If uh, if you're in a you know a new donor and you haven't donated before, um, so please check out our page at Patreon.com/slash/MediaRootsRadio. Yeah, and um, you know help us help us keep this podcast going. Yeah, the releases will be sporadic, but we will get them out there. So uh, bear with us until we figure that out. Very sad news um, came yesterday. And um, try not to cry like I do every time talking about something that I care about. But uh, Robert Perry, uh, founder of Consortium News, one of the best investigative journalists of our time. Um, we're going to get into his whole body of work and, and you know, in memory of him. But it, it's just incredible that, you know, we lost him within a month. He didn't even know he was sick. He was 68 years old and um, he had a, a mild stroke over the holidays. And then he found out they had pancreatic cancer um, undiagnosed for years, even though he apparently was going to get checked up. Uh, devastating, absolutely devastating news. Basically the same um, kind of the same blood as as Michael Rupert, just one of these guys who just did so much groundbreaking work and was basically vilified consistently by the mainstream media um, because he refused to cower and he refused to fall in line with the establishment narrative. And he consistently just did what was right. And we're going to go into everything about Robert Perry. And if you guys don't know who he is, um, it's because these people aren't lauded. Um, the people who are the true heroes aren't, aren't on the front pages of magazines. They're not the people who you see on TV. These are the people who are the unsung heroes who have changed our lives without us even knowing. So Robbie, you want to take it away? Yeah. Um, this is very, very sad. Um, when I heard the news, I was I was very sad when I heard that he had a stroke, and I was pleasantly surprised that he was still writing um, during that period. And it kind of gave me some hope that you know it must have been pretty mild, and that he was going to continue writing even if he you know had some um, issues from his stroke, and it was making it harder for him to read, um, as he had said on his website. But I, I was hopeful he was going to continue. Uh, you know, being the prolific journalist that he was and, you know, 68 years old, it didn't even cross my mind that we would lose such a valuable soul and basically a revolutionary figure in my mind so quickly like this. Um, mm -hmm. There aren't very many people who've gone through sort of the journalism circuit. He was an Associated Press reporter originally, and he learned by doing real investigative work for the Associated Press that they actually weren't that interested in cutting uh, critical of the U.S. government investigative work. So at a certain point, he had to go independent because basically being a real reporter in this country is no longer valued. And you, you can no longer really have a career in journalism if you do this kind of work, if you do truly challenging, hard-hitting work, investigative work. Um, it's simply not compatible with our mainstream media and even sort of the DC media class at this point. Um, 
and that's actually something that Robert Perry was also an influencer on. This idea that he had already gone through, you know, the Associated Press. He had access at certain times to Pentagon, State Department, White House officials. Um, and he realized very early on that it's it was basically a dance and a, a sort of a game for access. And that's what reporters counted on is getting access to these people, uncritically, you know, being stenographers and just reporting what they they tell them uncritically, you know, just his opinion on journalism in general was very low. Um, And what he saw happen to it, which is that everyone was afraid to criticize power because they would lose access as a result. And that's the dilemma that's still facing all journalists, Um, you know, and most journalists learn either intuitively or they're told at some point that you just can't do that to have a career. And that's, that's the unfortunate reality. And Robert Perry was just such in such a different mold than the rest of these people that he was so dedicated that he continued to write books, um, report on, you know, world events, Ukraine, Russia, Syria on a almost like weekly basis. I mean, it seemed like he had articles coming out like two to three times a week. He was one of the main people countering the incessant, just wall-to-wall Russian propaganda. And I'm talking about the U.S. propaganda of the Russian-Ukrainian coup. Um, he, he was one of the voices that Oliver Stone used in his documentary about Kiev. Um, and, and of course, the Russiagate narrative, which we'll get into later. But I mean, he has been one of these old school figures from this old world of journalism that has stayed true he he was one of the primary figures in the mainstream media who exposed um caa nicaraguan drug trafficking and gary webb is sort of the face that you most mostly hear about in terms of someone who exposed these things um um, but robert perry was also an extremely important component to all this as well just if you look at his body of work these these investigations that he did have contributed in such important ways to our understanding of the world now. And that's something I just, I feel like it just shows how real and authentic he was, that he mm-hmm. was putting out information that changed the ways that millions of people across the world thought, uh, but you probably didn't know his name. Um, you know, a lot of the things that inform your worldview about, you know, CIA drug trafficking came from Robert Perry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and a whole lot of other things too. I mean, it just, it's, it is really impressive how much of an influence he had while at the same time, relatively still flying under the radar. Um, and I think that just as a society, we don't value figures like that enough because, you know, history is written by the winners and that's mm-hmm. remains true today. You know, even the musicians that are popular that we hear about, are, are popular because they're the winners. I'm sure anybody working in any field, especially like an artistic or a writing field, they know people who are brilliant, um, revolutionary, you know, even figures who just can somehow just maintain uh, a status where they fly under the radar the whole time, yet they're having an incredible influence on the way people think. Um, and Robert Perry was definitely one of those figures. Yeah, and just these these exposed uh, the exposed underbelly of just how corrupt our government is. Of course, these of course these figures aren't going to be lauded, right? I mean, but when you look at the stories that he broke, like Robbie said, I mean, they've shaped our entire world. I mean, these are stories that 
have have made me become who I am today. Um, not only the the drug trafficking between the Contras, I mean, just the Iran-Contra scandal, the hostage crisis, for example, how he exposed how, let's all remember, when those 52 Americans were being held at the embassy in Tehran since the 1979 revolution, Reagan was sabotaging um, Carter's negotiations. And, and Perry's the one who broke that. And Perry's the one who, who stayed on that story and made it widely known. And um, we don't give that enough credit at all. I mean, it's just such a crazy story that Reagan basically committed treason, um, directly negotiating to try to usurp Jimmy Carter yeah. to take these hostages out. And the day that he got inaugurated, or I'm sorry, elected, these hostages were released. And this is just on the heels of all the, the, the weapons shipments and the cocaine trafficking and the drug war, like Robbie said, Gary Webb's scene and, and one of these articles on Consortium News holding up a paper, um, of Robert Perry's article. Um, it's just really cool to see. It's just, it's just really unfortunate that I was never able to interview Robert Perry or even thank him. Um, Consortium News was one of the first websites that even published like my articles when I was doing just little op-eds for Media Roots. And so I'll always, you know, that was really exciting for me because it's like a huge deal. It's amazing his body of work and, and the amount of influence that he had, but the unsung heroes, like we said. Yeah. And just for me personally, um, I didn't realize that most of the the best critical analysis of Ukraine, of Victoria Newland, of the neocons um, happening in the last three to four years was coming from Robert Perry. It actually took me probably over a year to realize that most of the stuff I was reading and ingesting that I felt was really smart analysis and breakdowns of those situations was inspired by or influenced by Robert Perry his sort of worldview and framing of a lot of these issues. And, you know, a lot of people will credit him. You know, you'll see a lot of people who are talking about fight combating this anti-Russian hysteria and propaganda will mention him. But even in that instance, you know, he doesn't, he wasn't even considered sort of the oracle for a lot of that stuff, even though in my mind, he really was like, he was my go-to source on almost all, every one of those issues, even just in terms of the Kagan family and Robert Kagan, um, I didn't realize until much later, actually, after finishing a very heavy agenda, that Robert Perry was actually directly threatened by Robert K uh, Kagan while he was an AP reporter trying to report on stuff at the State Department. Um, and this is actually a quote from one of his articles about that experience that's just, uh, to me, really interesting. Robert Perry said, During my years at the Associated Press and Newsweek, I dealt with a number of now prominent neocons who were just starting out and mastering these techniques of top CIA psychological warfare specialist Walter Raymond Jr., who had been transferred to President Ronald Reagan's National Security Council staff, where Raymond oversaw interagency task forces that pushed Reagan's hardline agenda in Central America and elsewhere. One of these quick learners was Robert Kagan, who was then a protege of Assistant Secretary of State Elliot Abrams. Kagan got his first big chance when he became director of the State Department's Public Diplomacy Office for Latin America, a key outlet for Raymond's propaganda schemes. Though always personable in his dealings with me, Kagan grew frustrated when I wouldn't swallow the propaganda that, that I was being fed. At one point, Kagan warned me that I might have to be, quote, controversialized, unquote, targeted for public attack by Reagan's right-wing media allies and anti-journalism attack groups like Accuracy and Media, a process that did indeed occur. So that's interesting. So that very early on, um, 
and this is when Robert Kagan was a very young man. I think probably he was actually younger than Robert Perry at the time. Um, was directly telling Robert Perry that be careful, you're stepping too much out of line with our narrative, and we're going to have to controversialize you, which is an interesting. Uh, sort of word. I don't even know if it's an actual word in the dictionary. I don't know if you can use it as a verb like that. And it's vague, but it can mean a whole number of things. It can mean... And guess what? It's exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah, like... it's exactly what they did. And let's look at someone like who's celebrated as an intrepid investigative reporter who put his life on the line to take down an administration or to expose an administration, Bob Woodward. Um, look at what he has become over the years, a total sycophant, uh, bush worshiping pile of shit. I mean, he is a fucking embarrassment now to journalism. So this is actually what happens to you when you actually do good consistent, hard-hitting work. You don't rise in your career. You actually get kind of buried. And that is the harsh reality of doing real journalism in this country. So I think people just need to remember that. And I don't mean to sound depressing or cynical about this, but I think that that makes what Robert Perry was even more heroic and important in my mind. Is that he went, he put himself through this process knowing full well what was going to happen to him. And he still persisted and decided to do this every fucking day. Yeah, you think this is easy? You think this doesn't take a toll on your health? (laughs) The stress levels of being isolated, increasingly marginalized, um, working day in and day out, never getting the notoriety or or praise or anything. You do it for the truth. You do it for what's right. And and at the uh, sacrificing himself, his health, his family. you know, he he became kind of obsessed with Reagan after discovering those trove of documents that could have proved that Carter was sabotaged. And actually, Carter could have won if if those were just found earlier. So imagine like, you know, this kind of weighing on his shoulders once he realized how much Reagan defined the rest of that century and beyond, even continued by Obama. He says that he thinks Obama wasn't able to do a lot of what he wanted to maybe because of just this mythology of, of Reaganism was cemented in and just our entire, you know, national dogma. Um, and just this whole, the state is the, the reason for all the ills. And Robert Perry was really upset by that. Um, and he had some really, really amazing things to say about, about the Obama era. Um, during the Bush administration, they refused to even call him President Bush because they saw him not as a legitimate elected president. Um, during that administration, of course, we know the sycophants and the stenographers and the unquestioning um, diligence of reporters in the Beltway to just basically print whatever the government was saying. Consortium News provided an alternative hub for people like Ray McGovern, um, people who were outside of, of that line of thought, challenging the WMD narrative, challenging the Iraq war narrative. Consortium News provided that space. Um, continuing on through the Obama administration, he he just continued to point out that even though Obama seemed like a you know progressive, maybe even leftist personally, that he would not be able to do anything beyond the confines of the establishment, beyond the confines of American imperialism and empire, um, and continued to basically just reassert why we need such a strong foundation for actual independent journalism. He was seeing the trajectory. Um, he was seeing how journalism was failing us over and over and over again. Um, he talks about 
the war of ideas. He talks about the limitations and the power of propaganda and just continuing to go back to his main point, why independent journalism is so important. The Russiagate narrative, I think, just just really elucidates this point because he stood strong in the face of getting continuously smeared over and over again, um, being lumped in with actual Ru- like Russian state propagandists. Um, this is like a grassroots website, like donor-based, no ads, consortium news. And of course, it was just lumped in with this proper not hysterical campaign from some CIA spook. Um, all of his traffic, I think, went down by half. Um, you know, just, just smeared over and over again in the press as, as a Trump supporter, <laughs> you know, just because the website was just pushing back simply against the Russiagate narrative. And he continued to just ask rhetorically, how is this possible that all these establishment journalists are just like, repeating this i mean he just couldn't believe it um and i think that that's that's important you mentioned that why he was so incredulous towards it and why he you know it was so obvious to him that it was a propaganda campaign it's because i think like him you know you and i even though we didn't have nearly the same foundation of knowledge that he had around the time the ukraine situation flared up since we saw it starting then really going like into high gear then and then its evolution since then till now it's blatantly obvious that it is some kind of slow motion anti-russian propaganda campaign we just didn't realize that it was going to like flip this hard after trump won and that they were going to try to blame the election on russia i mean (laughs) so i feel like it's like he, you know, he was there early noticing all this stuff as it was sort of the seeding was happening. And I think that that gives you very valuable insight. And I, I would personally believe that unless you are a paid propagandist or a nat or a, like a diehard patriotic nationalist, anybody who was paying attention during that time period and, and, and looking at that analysis back then would feel the same way about Russiagate now and realize that it is all mostly, you know, 99.9% bullshit. So, um, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I'd say go back to the source, go back to Robert Perry's writings back in 2014, 2013. He was, he was on this stuff before most other people were. And yeah. I, I can't say that, you know, I can't, uh, I can't say that enough times. I mean, it's, he, he was a huge influencer, and the way let's, people let's, talk about this stuff. And this is his last op-ed. He, he wrote an op-ed saying an apology and an explanation. And, and it's really just pointing as hell because first of all, you know, he died after this, but it was almost like he almost knew. It was kind of just a really um, interesting parting words and, and really <sighs> insightful. Um, he talks, he breaks it down into several sections. One of them is called the Trump crisis. And he just is talking about that, you know, Putin is like the Mona Lisa. Like you can just like throw anything on Putin to interpret him however you want. He's like this cartoon villain and 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 essentially the same with Trump in a way. He says the hatred of Trump and Putin was so intense that old-fashioned rules of journalism and fairness were brushed aside. On a personal note, I faced harsh criticism even from my friends for refusing to enlist in the anti-Trump resistance, quote-unquote. The argument was that Trump was such a unique threat to America and the world that I should be joined in finding any justification for his ouster. Some people saw my insistence on the same journalistic standards that I'd always employed somehow a betrayal. 
Um, other people, including senior editors across mainstream media, began to treat the unproven Russiagate allegations as fact. No skepticism was tolerated, and mentioning the obvious bias among the never-Trumpers inside the FBI, Justice Department, and intelligence community was decried as an attack on the integrity of the U.S. government. Um, and he just said, you know, he just says like, yeah, I don't like Trump, but why should this cloud our judgment of fair and honest journalism? Um, we're doing ourselves a grave disservice here. And then he says, he said, Trump is basically like what, why, what I always say. And of course, no one knows this better than Perry, who exposed CIA drug trafficking uh, decades ago. He says, the most alarming thing is tr- Donald Trump has sem- simply just removed the mask of empire. He essentially says this at the end of his article. He says, Donald Trump is the mask that is now gone. In many ways, all sides of official Washington are revealed collectively as reflections of Trump. Disinterested in reality, exploiting information for tactical purposes, eager to manipulate or con the public. I mean, it's just beautifully written. It's totally true. Um, And he just says, if there's one thing that I could just change about American Western journalism. Like these are his dying words. He said, if there's one thing he could change. It would be that we all repudiate this information warfare in favor of an old fashioned respect for facts and fairness and do whatever we can to achieve a truly informed electorate here, here. Wow. So I guess Robert, Robert Perry was not a, uh, a QAnon believer then he believes in, <laughs> he doesn't believe in controlled opposition, bullshit media, that seems like it's being piped out of Trump loyalists um, to fight this. He believes in facts and investigations, like a like a real journalist should, or even just not even. I mean, even the word journalist. Let's throw that out. Just an honest, authentic person who wants to get to the truth would, because throwing some kind of information war wep, you know, weapon or lob grenade back to try to fight the propaganda, like. You know, we'll go into this later, but like constantly talking about the deep state is gunning for Trump as a means to combat the Russiagate propaganda is just as dumb as the Russiagate propaganda itself, in my opinion. And I think that's kind of, if you read between the lines of what Robert Perry is saying, we need to get back to the old school method of reporting. Yeah. The only real way. I mean, otherwise, what is, what's even really the point? Um, yeah, and I like how he said this is just ludicrous that you're claiming that Trump is some unique evil. He said, look around. What do you think this country is? Yeah. What do you think this country represents? And, and and just as an example, I mean, he hate to go back to the Kagan family a bunch uh, when I'm talking about Robert Perry, but I, I can't stress enough how important his work on the Kagan family was, not just for myself and, and, and sort of forming my view on them for my film, a very heavy agenda, but just, in general, like letting people know that there is literally a family business of perpetual war that operates out of D.C. And one of the one of his quotes about the Kagan family is, uh, the family Kagan has almost a self-perpetuating circular business model working the inside corridors of government power to stimulate wars while simultaneously influencing the public debate through think tank reports and op-ed columns in favor of more military spending and then collecting grants and other funding from thankful military contractors. And then this is just how aware he was. I'm going to continue his quote, but this is just how aware he was of how you know typical this is in D.C. He doesn't even think the Kagan family is that unique. 
So he says, to be fair, the Newland Kagan mom and pop shop is really only a microcosm of how the military industrial complex has worked for decades. Think tank analysts generate the reasons for military spending, the government bureaucrats implement the necessary war policies, and the military contractors make lots of money before kicking back some to the think tanks so the bloody but profitable cycle can spin again. The only thing that makes the Newland Kagan operation special, perhaps, is that the whole process is all in the family. So he knows how this whole thing works. And even though it may seem obvious when you read what he's saying, I don't think most people in this country understand this is how that works. You know, just the, the, the cycle that he's talking about. Remove the Kagan family from the equation. The cycle is still there. And the Kagan family exemplifies that cycle better than almost, you know, any other group of people because they're a family. Yeah, who and the it, hell else was covering <laughs> the Kagans? Who else got threatened by the Kagan family? <laughs> like Nobody. I mean, and the only amazing. time, and you know, I felt privileged to be able to talk to him a little bit via email. He was he was nice enough to respond to me. He, he still was using an AOL, at AOL.com email address. Um, he told me he didn't use any encrypted communication. He says he's very old school. Um, and he even suggested if I wanted to send him something encrypted, just send him a letter in the mail. He didn't like getting any kind of encrypted communication. I, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is other than trying to humble brag that I talked to Robert Perry <laughs> is that <laughs> I felt privileged as able to talk to him, but I almost felt like I didn't want to exploit that privilege. And I wished that I would have talked to him more and, and picked his brain yeah. because he's such a brilliant man, but I didn't want to like pester him as I had so much respect for him. And I, it was so, um, like I idolized him in a way. I didn't want to bother him. Right. And I never even like asked him if he saw a very heavy agenda, even though the movie is highly indebted to his work. Um, I did send him a copy. I never like bothered him about it. I never was like, Hey, did you get a chance to watch that? I just had too much respect for the guy. And, um, and yeah, so other people who had a chance to talk to him know, know how uh, humble and nice he was. I've reached out to other people you know, sort of old, older journalists in the scene, a lot of them are very fucking, they got a chip on their shoulder, understandably, right? I mean, if you've been working, doing journalism for of so course. long and you've yeah, basically God, been God, smeared yeah. into oblivion or you've been marginalized, you know, you're probably not going to be super nice to everybody. Yeah, if you haven't totally cracked by now, yeah. become a right winger, become off the deep end, he, he was one of the true ones. He was so nice to me. He didn't yeah. know me at all. He had yeah. no idea who I was. He was super nice to me. And well, that's what's so fucking vile about shit like the proper not tweet. Oh my that God, just yeah. spits on his grave. This please tell proper not that they are spook fest uh, little operation. Um, they have the audacity. Not only you know to label Consortium News as a Russian propaganda outlet, mm -hmm. um, but then they have the audacity to actually quote tweet Consortium News in the wake of Robert Perry's death. Yeah, less than twenty four hours after we find out that he dies, and they said he's no doubt hot bunking it in hell with Lord Haha. -ha. Good riddance. Go fuck yourselves, spooks. I mean, it's just you not even like spooks. good cutting humor or anything. I mean, who is it's just, running this account? Well, this is the thing with proper not is they kickstarted this whole phenomenon of fake news, and they have very eerie similarities to the alliance for what to the Alliance for Securing Democracy does. Now, we can't necessarily prove who runs it because it's an anonymous organization. I did some digging and and got as far as finding their LLC filed in New Mexico. I made some phone calls. Um, 
they've hid their and uh, their identities pretty well but they're also like not professional people like whoever's running this organization is probably like a younger or probably in their early 20s um and they might just be a tool for some kind of psyop mm-hmm. um now just an can, unwitting asshole running the twitter thinking that he's funny yeah and we could go back to you know why does proper not hate consortium news so much well it turns out that um that consortium news did a fucking hard hitting expose trying to get to the bottom of who proper not actually is and they suspect that michael weiss actually might be involved in it whoopsies which might make sense i haven't actually read the entirety of this article but i would recommend checking out the article on consortium news uh, called unpacking the shadowy outfit behind 2017's biggest fake news story they have some of the best debunking of the russiagate articles too Oh, they absolutely do. And the funny thing is, Proper Not is furious at Robert Perry still, specifically for an article he wrote on MH17, where he was directly trying to debunk a screenshot that Bellingcat <laughs> um, was using, trying to prove that a Buk missile system was used to shoot down the plane. Now, Bellingcat, you know, retorted and said that Robert Perry was, uh, was a sloppy investigative journalist for not knowing that was the right screenshot or something like that. Now, that's the best thing. That's like the best criticism, apparently, they, that Proper Not has to level against him. But what's interesting is this article, Consortium News, suggests that Bellingcat might also be involved in, in uh, Proper oh, 100%, Not. 100%, dude. what's funny is Eric Toller of Bellingcat was like going after proper not like a month or two ago, like about how immature and unprofessional they acted on Twitter, talking about like sucking Putin's dick. They were like tweeting stuff like that, which is bizarre because if Bellingcat is involved in proper not, then are they just like pretending to have a fight on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, it, it it raises a lot of questions because Eric Toller, as I was saying, is actually part of Bellingcat and they're sort of fighting on Twitter, but yet proper not is promoting Bellingcat's work um, to this day. So it's, it's strange. There's a lot of questions yeah, it, that need to be they answered keep promoting about promoting Bellingcat. Yeah. I mean, it's very obvious that there's something going on, um, yeah. linking them together. And the reporter, I mean, I think again, it's one of these things where you go back to the source. It's like, yeah, proper not. It's obviously some kind of weird propaganda operation in and of itself, but how did it get popular in the first place? How did we even hear about it? We heard about it because a Washington Post reporter who's very obscure himself, I've never fucking heard of him before, named Craig Timberg, decided to run a huge puff piece about it. Yeah. So Signal really, boosted the hell out of it. Yeah. So it's like, did they reach out to him? Did he reach out to them? How did he even fucking hear this organization? That I, it's super obscure. I mean, it de- it's like one of the most straight up psyops I've ever seen. Right. Almost down to the idea of using like a naive idiot moron Washington Post reporter as a conduit for it. Right. So, yeah. I mean, why don't you hit him up on Twitter and ask him? He won't tell you. He won't respond right. to anything you say um, because he's a total fucking coward, a little propagandist. But it's, I mean, he... I actually trace a lot of this fake news shit back to Craig Timberg, you know, accusing yeah. r- radical left websites of being fake news or Putin apologists or useful idiots for Putin. These people are all too willing to just propagate this narrative. And it's just, they're such useful idiots that they probably just some, some spook fest org shell organization. They just plant these stories and these assholes just run with them because they're desperate to try to prove some collusion bullshit i guess i'm always wondering like can they really believe this or are they in such denial still that trump won that they can't accept why that they still have to convince themselves i still just really can't figure it out i almost wish that i was still living in dc 
And I would just ask everyone that I meet, like, do you genuinely believe that? I don't think <laughs> Russia so. cost the election. I mean, I don't. I think that uh, what's her name? Misha Graves. Who's the like Russian expat activist who almost looks like a more grizzled Rachel Maddow? Do you know what I'm talking I have no about? No idea. No. Oh God! Like I'm totally botching her name. Let me hold on. Why don't you? Okay, continue? I'm gonna I'm gonna read one more quote from um from Nat Perry, Robert Perry's son, who also was doing a lot of work for Consortium News. He wrote a book, um, co-wrote a book with his father. Just an overall great guy, um, and he writes a really moving, beautiful tribute to his dad. He talks about, it kind of reminds me of me um, in a way. He, he talks about how he says, one of my earliest memories of my dad was in fact him about to leave on assignment in the early 1980s to the war zones of El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. And this heartfelt goodbye that he wished me and my siblings. And, you know, his son was asking, why, why are you doing this? Why are you going here? You might not come back. This is so dangerous. And Robert Perry just said, it's important to go to these places and tell the truth about what's happening. He said, there are children your age being killed there in these wars. And he says, someone has to go tell their stories. And his son says, kids like me? And he says, yes, kids just like you. I really wish Nate the best. And I hope that, you know, there there's really big shoes to fill um, with Robert leaving us like this way too soon. And somebody's got to fill him is really all I yeah. can say. Yeah. And if it's not the writers at Consortium News who are still writing there, there, these are very big shoes to fill and there are not enough people. There are a lot of clickbait people out there taking advantage of this void right now. There are a lot of clickbait people and I'm not going to name names because the last time I did, um, I, I got hit with a very bizarre counterattack um, that I'm not even going to go into. Um, and, you know, it basically was the equivalent of a Bernie bro counterattack for calling out one of these you know, prolific clickbait people who talks about Russiagate all the time, who's retweeted by Julian Assange. Um, but those people are really flooding into this void and using it to make money and get clicks. And they're talking about how the deep state's coming for Trump. They're talking about release the memo. All they talk about sometimes is Seth Rich as if that's the golden ticket to figure out all, you know, the key to figuring out what actually happened, where the leaks came from, um, et cetera. This is the problem is that there aren't there are so few people like Robert Perry who are actually doing the work and basing it on a body of knowledge that is just impenetrable. I mean, just even the fact that he had this, these exchanges with Robert Kagan back in the 80s, he knew that guy going back from the 80s all the way till today. Imagine any time Robert Kagan pop up or his wife did, you know, Robert Perry was probably like, "Okay, here we go." You know, this is not my first yeah. rodeo. This is yeah. this is happening again. Just that little bit of knowledge and, and history that he had interacting with government um, is extremely informative and helpful to be able to even just detect when a new push for war is coming, for example. Right. A lot of these clickbait people, their body of knowledge is Julian Assange's Twitter account. Right. And that's fucking sad. Right. Okay. A guy who now regularly promotes Tim Pool and other charlatans. You know, I mean, this is a guy who I, for, you know, I don't want Julian Assange to go to jail. I still very much respect what WikiLeaks did. But if that's your body of knowledge, that's a serious problem. It's a very serious problem. So, yeah, I recommend these clip bait people to just like, you know, 
cash out for the month and just try to read a couple books. Yeah. Read some of Perry's work. Yeah. Read seriously. So I didn't realize he had so many books, almost all Mm -hmm. of them self-published, independently published. Out of the ones he recommended to me, I I bought Secrecy and Privilege, Lost History, and Fooling America. These are dense, very well-sourced books. I mean, they're not easy reads in the sense that you can, you know, get through them in a couple of days. They you have to really like it's almost kind of like study book material. I mean, there's so many names, obscure names in the Reagan administration, the Bush administration. Um, you will learn so much just from reading one of his books. Um, way more than you would, you know, in a typical, you know, like a three day, four day binge going through zero hedge articles or whatever. Which I hate to say is what kind of you know in line with this clickbait bullshit I'm talking about. Give give consortium news some love. Subscribe, donate. Um, they're gonna keep going in in the legacy of Perry, and they're not gonna stop. And and it's up to all of us to carry on his legacy in the best way that we see fit. Um, and that's not being a clickbait bullshit uh, quote unquote journalist, and actually doing just work and homage to Perry doing actual investigative journalism, adding um, important things to the dialogue, adding things that will shape, you know, the way that we look at the world in a profound way. Thank you, Robert, for being such a huge influence on, on me, on so many people and millions, tens of millions of people who, who don't even know that you influence them as well. Um, we'll never forget you and we'll keep fighting on your behalf. We'll never stop. Love you, Robert. And, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss you, man. going to miss you, dude. Um, one of the greats. Well, let's talk about the fucking crazy missile alert in Hawaii. I know that it happened a long time ago, but it's just such a crazy story. Um, when it happened, I had no idea, A, that it happened just days later in Japan, and B, that it took 40 minutes for the government to issue a correction. I mean, when you hear about the actual story, it's very hard to believe, you know, that this was just like an accident. I mean, if it, and if it was, wow, how absurdly dumb are these systems set up where you can have simply a drop-down menu and accidentally click missile alert and have no way to rectify it and let people know that it was a mistake. Um, Let me quickly just say what happened in case people have been living under a rock since the missile alert (laughs) and thinking that it was real. Um, 40 minutes after, you know, they sent this alert, it was a mass text, like an Amber alert on everyone's phones. It was at eight in the clock in the morning. People were driving to work. People were freaking out. Um, understandably not, you know, thinking that there was a nuclear missile coming from North Korea. Um, there were people throwing their children into manholes. I'm actually stunned that no one died or committed suicide considering the state of the world right now. Um, and when you look at something like Orson Welles, the radio broadcast war, of the worlds, people did die. Um, so I, you know, 40 minutes is a long fucking time to think that a nuclear bomb is coming to where you are. And there was no information where, how, what was going on, 40 minutes until they corrected it. Um, and their excuse was simply that they didn't have like an Amber Alert mass system set up with emergency response or FEMA or whatever to correct it. They only had one just automatically sent out when there was a missile. Um, so, so I like actually believed it, that it was a mistake until days later, Japan did it too. So it's just odd in the in the climate that we're living in with all these weapons build up. This is already a nuclear arsenal that's going to cost 1.2 trillion dollars just to maintain. It's the um, biggest 
yeah. like push increase of our nuclear budget ever of all time. Oh, so here's the actual thing of what he's doing. He's he's violating the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which isn't shocking. He's violating every fucking treaty in the world. Um, but it's violating this by building its stockpile up of, of low-yield warheads. Um, and so I guess these are just, you know, just a whole other set of nukes on top of the nukes that we're already maintaining. So, you know, we, we just need more nukes. So that's good. Um, and it just kind of you know, just, just totally under the radar. It's like, and on top of this, there's all these weapons deals going on with South Korea and the U S the THAAD nuclear defense system. Um, so I don't know, Robbie, I mean, what do you think about the whole Japan and uh, Japan only took like a couple minutes to correct it though. That's the difference. From what Japan's, I saw, I thought it was 24 minutes. No, or was that the other, that was the Hawaii warning. Well, I have, Hawaii I mean, was 40. <laughs> Okay, well then maybe it was only maybe it was twenty four minutes because that's what I remember seeing. So well, it says broadcaster NHK corrected itself five minutes later and okay. apologized for the error on its ev- evening news. From what I read, apparently the alert. So if you had NHK alerts on your phone, it came on your phone the same way the Hawaii alert did. This wasn't just like the news said it on the radio or anything. It came on people's phones in the same way. Um. So it said NHK alert and like pretty much the same type of warning, like a ballistic missile is on its way right now, Um, like seek shelter. And then something like 24 minutes later, they sent an alert saying that it was a false alarm. Now, I feel like most of the people who got that probably weren't actually, I don't know if they turn on the TV to see that five minutes later. So that's the only reason I I say that. There might have been a 20 minute period where most of the people who got that alert on their phone thought that a missile was incoming. I, it was interesting when I, when I put out there the idea that this could be a provocation for a war or a fear, intentional fear mongering, somebody basically said that, Oh, that sounds like Louise Mensch, Alex Jones, conspiracy theory thinking. So I presented them in my mind, a lot of good evidence to suggest that there is actually a lot of motive here for not just the Trump administration, but Abe's government and Japan to want to do this. Um, to want to scare their population. You know, his first argument was, well, Trump, you know, Trump administration is so incompetent to think that they would even like orchestrate something like this is absurd. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even be able to think about doing something like this. So I started showing him all these different examples of how there is basically a pending multi-billion dollar arms deal that's being done uh, with South Korea from the Trump administration. There's an article on quartz.com, qz.com, uh, Trump is using North Korea to peddle pricey U.S. weapons in Asia and at home. It says, for U.S. defense contractors, Donald Trump might be looking like a salesman in chief right about now. In the space of two days, Trump has urged the leaders of Japan and South Korea, as well as the U.S. Congress, to spend heavily on expensive systems offered by the likes of Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and Boeing's Defense Division, all in the name of defending against North Korea. Yesterday, while in Japan, the first stop in a trip through Asia, Trump held a joint press conference with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, whom he urged to buy U.S. military equipment as protection against North Korea. So they're fear-mongering us here at home in places like Hawaii and just in general with the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. They're fear-mongering the Japanese population. They're fear-mongering South Koreans. This is why Trump spent so much time in Asia, to fear-monger... The, Asian, yeah. the different governments of these countries into buying U.S. weaponry. Now, this this tour that he did happened in November 2017. So, those warnings came in like a month later, really. No, actually two months later. Sorry. 
Well, what's so weird is that apparently this whole Cold War warning system of nuclear weapons has been in place since the Cold War. So you have to ask yourself, why all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, in the midst of all of this happening, um, you know, the doomsday clock is set next to midnight and, and Trump's tweeting my nuclear, my red buttons bigger than yours and taunting Kim Jong-un every day. It's just, it's just fascinating that this just accidentally happens, not only in Hawaii, but in Japan. I mean, it's so, so bizarre. And I think that that's a really important question to ask is, you know, we should have probably actually done more research on this, but how did this system get implemented in the first place? Was this sort of based like, you know, how do these deals happen? So this this system even going in in the first place to me seems like a propagandistic fear-mongering t- tool in and of itself. Like that they would even need this warning system in Hawaii. I mean, that's very strange. Um, was this something that the Obama administration put in place? Yeah, I'm not sure about the text alert system. I, I, was, I guess I was talking about the actual like Cold War like sirens, um, oh, which oh, didn't oh, yeah. go off. That didn't go off. So that was like even more confusing to people because they, they didn't hear the sirens, but they just like never heard a correction. And they're just like, what in the hell is going on? You know, a week after or two weeks after this happens, the Trump administration comes out and basically just declares that it's going to violate the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Not, you know, of course, this is aside from the obvious point that the U.S. is the only country that has nuclear weapons, I mean, has used them and just continues to be this moral arbitrator of who can who can and can't have nukes. Anyway, they're they're openly violating the treaty by basically building a stockpile of low-yield warheads. So let me explain what that means. So after the State of the Union address, he's probably going to talk about this actually. Um he's going to basically buy a bunch more nukes. Um they're going to cost 66 million dollars each. They're going to carry more than 30 times the destructive power of the Hiroshima bomb. So this is just fascinating because this is on top of the $1.2 trillion nuclear arsenal that you were just talking about that we're, we've maintained all, you know, on top of that, he's buying all these other nukes. Um, I, I have no idea why. <laughs> just very, very interesting. <laughs> I, I think it is really important now, now that I'm thinking more about it, to find out exactly how this was implemented because I think that, that that might be the key to understanding it. Because, yeah, it seems it does seem a little maybe conspiratorial to suggest that they both triggered, you know, Japan and Hawaii triggered their warning systems intentionally as a fear-mongering tool to get a weapons deal pushed through. Um, but at the same time, who actually made this warning system in either country? Who made it? Right. Uh, probably one of these defense companies, Right. I mean, I, I wish I am now I'm kicking myself for not actually looking more into this, but think about it. I mean, even that just gives an impetus to trigger a false warning. If it's Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin and all these same top five defense contractor companies and they they were involved in, you know, developing this warning system. I mean, that's enough impetus it gives them enough reason to want to trigger a false warning, but just, but going back to the idea of just implementing it in the first place. I think that in and of itself is sort of a ramp up fear mongering tool for pushes for war and just weapon sales in general. Just normalizing this fear, constant fear. I mean, well, Tulsi Gabbard, who seems to be the only sane politician um, these days, she kept asking, she's like, are we going to get answers here? She also was trying to, you know, she knew that it was a, a false alert before they even issued a correction and she was begging them. Can she please 
you know, tell her followers or say something, make some sort of statement to stop people from from stampeding or, or this mass hysteria that was going on, and they refused to let her. Um, she also has come out multiple times and said, when are we going to have some sort of accountability? Um, why was no one fired? Why was someone just moved around? This is, is that not grounds to fire someone? When you issue a false fucking nuclear missile alert and don't correct it for 40 minutes? Like, well, they hid who I'm it sorry. was. We still don't yeah, know no, who yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. They were just moved around at the agency. And that must be very frustrating for reporters to have like a blockade where they're per- intentionally trying to hide the identity of the person who's responsible. Because then you're just going through layers of PR. I mean, they throw out some Hawaiian government official who is clearly unprepared for the press conference and the, the general press corps, when you see the way the press corps acts in some of these press conferences before they you know put a pen to paper, actually go out and talk on television, did their filter, they're asking a lot of really hard questions. And, and I could tell that a lot of the reporters did not believe the wrong button push thing. They didn't, they simply didn't believe it. But of course they reported it because that's what they were told. But even in like the CNN report about it, if you just read the report, like the way, the tone of the article is also sort of in disbelief. It's like incredulous, yeah. Yeah, it has quotes around like push the wrong button and they allegedly did this and <laughs> hit the wrong menu. It's like, I think most reasonable people thought, wow, that's such an egregious mistake that it either needs to be, the question that needs to be asked, let's say if it was a mistake, is why is this system even here in the first place? Why are we so concerned that North Korea is going to launch a nuclear missile? So this is, yeah, no, and, and I'm reading an article about it right now to get some information about when the system was implemented. I was right. I mean, the, this whole attack warning system was initiated during the Cold War. It doesn't say what company, it doesn't say who put it in, but basically they, once the North Korea missile tests happened last year, it claimed that Japan implemented a similar system. I This is all very... Um, we need to definitely do more research on on you know what yeah. exactly that was and when like the text alert thing got we got promise, added. Yeah, we promise next time we will have some answers for this question because we didn't realize that. I mean, as we were sitting here talking about, it, I think that's the crux of this really is where does this warning system come from and what companies were involved in putting it in now because you know it's slightly privatized. And why was no one fired? I mean, yeah. I, why was no one line. fired? Why are they hiding this guy's identity? Yeah. Why is the Japanese government all of a sudden sucking Trump's dick? And acting like, you know, and then running propaganda through their own newspapers that's obviously a leak from the Trump administration about South Korea's biological weapons programs and tipping yeah. missiles with um, anthrax. Abe Why is that happening revive, all at the same Abe time? wants to revive the empire. He's boys with Trump. Um, you know, the, the whole press conference that you're talking about reminds me of Ari Fleischer being uh, interrogated right after he says that bin Laden did, you know, we're going to present all this evidence that bin Laden did 9-11 and all this stuff. And the reporters are like, so you just expect us to trust you yeah because <laughs> he's like yeah he's like we'll eventually provide you with a white paper and the reporter's like what they're like which so you're g- not gonna do it <laughs> which is such a good example showing how there are people in the press who like ha- have the same bullshit detectors we do they just don't stand up for them and like follow it all the way through <laughs> Yeah, 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 it was like it was just the most <laughs> hilarious press conference. You guys should watch it because Ari Fle- it's like it's just like what the press should do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, that that clip has actually been buried. Um, you have to. It's interesting. Some of those more crazy Bush clips about nine eleven and just like completely unbelievable statements he made about them. They're they aren't even on YouTube really. There's there's clips from like Loose Change on YouTube, but you actually have to dig to find that clip on C-SPAN. Good luck trying to find it. I'll I'll post a link to it if I can find it by the time I post this podcast up. 
Oh, and by the way, the person I was t- saying looked like a tore up Rachel Maddow, who's actually saying some good things to push up against Russiagate right now. His name is Masha Gessen. And she's saying on a BBC Newsnight special, even though she went on the Rachel Maddow show a bunch and went on MSNBC to hype up new Cold War and anti-Putin hysteria, um, she is now saying Russians didn't elect Donald Trump. Americans did. And she's basically pushing back on this idea Great. that... You know that he's to that Putin and Russia are to blame for Donald Trump's election, even though she was used as a tool by these same people. You know, originally, right, right, right. So she's ter- now turning around and realizing how out of control it's getting, which is at least something to have one of these people. It'd be like if, um, what's his face, Kasparov said, "Hey guys, mm-hmm. this anti-Russia stuff's getting a little out of hand here now. Like let's hold, let's let's turn this around." She was not as bad as someone like Kasparov, but she did say a lot of dumb things, um, you know, about Putin. But I, she seems more credible than most of these people. She's like a credible version of like Pussy Riot in a in a weird way. Right. I need to check her out. That's yeah. good. That's good that more people are pushing back. The more, the merrier, guys. Yeah. Um, it's never too late to come on the right side of history here. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know but this is very hard to accept that Trump's president, but. But just going back to this nuclear weapons, ballistic missile warning system thing, I mean, it just, it's like, I just watched Terminator 2 again on TV and it, you know, it really, the Cold War and this sort of fear of nuclear Armageddon never really went away. Um, I just feel like somehow as a society, we've just man- managed to put it in the background, almost like background noise. That's maybe a little bit momentarily distracting when we realize, oh my God, we could, you know, get in a nuclear war and everybody could be dead within hours. I'm sure some people think that sometimes, but it's just like, it just doesn't cross your mind that we have so many nukes and so many crazy people running all these countries, especially mostly the United States, that we're still on the brink of Armageddon in so many ways. But yet we've just normalized it and it's just like, okay, let's just go about our lives. Like it is really strange. And like just watching Terminator 2 just kind of reminds you of like that. Once you really see, you know, the imagery in that movie of the nuke going off in LA and Sarah Connor's like holding like the fence while she's getting her skin burned off really brings home like, wow, this, this fear, this innate fear of Armageddon is still, it's not irrational. It's still here. Yeah, I mean, it, nuclear war and climate change, I feel like you you have to push them out of your mind. Otherwise, you'll be totally debilitated from just living your day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's why the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, this group of scientists who have just said this is the most important issue, we have to make this our priority. Number one priority is to completely demilitarize all nuclear weapons, decommission all nuclear weapons, because inevitably we will have a nuclear war. And then what's going to happen? Like we need to make this our, yeah, we need to do this now. And that's like their main issue, their number one issue. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just, this is something that we can prevent, you know, decommission all nukes. So it's just really, it's, it's, it's a really daunting um, thought. And to have these missile alerts, it really, you know, just like reinvigorates that fear in everyone and, and reminds people that nuclear war could happen. And, it's completely terrifying. Um, yeah. So Venezuela, um, Trump, you know, the Trump administration made this bizarre declaration that months in advance of the Venezuelan presidential elections, again, Venezuela has, has elections every year, one of the most uh, free and open elections, actually, one of the most transparent because you can audit every vote 
blah, 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 blah. So, so the whole, you know, mantra of Venezuela is this totalitarian state where they control the elections is total horseshit. Look at the Jimmy Carter Center and what they say about Venezuela. Look at our reports. Um, so this is kind of new for the U.S. empire's belligerence. You know, usually we just discount the results after they happen, um, or diminish their importance or whatever. But, but this time Trump is coming out in advance and saying we will not recognize the results. So my question is, what if the opposition wins? Because they might, <laughs> because, because they have. I mean, they have in the past. They won the National Assembly um, a couple of years ago. So it's, just, be hilarious. it's bizarre. Yeah. That would be absolutely fucking hilarious. And wouldn't it be even more hilarious if, like, Trump was, like, um, in the same way that, like, Victoria Newland and the Obama administration and, and all the, you know, the during that era were trumpeting the Ukrainian government, the opposition for taking over. What, it wouldn't be so bizarre if the Trump administration did that with the Venezuelan opposition. Mm-hmm. I could actually see it happening. I really can. Oh, um, that's amazing. It's amazing. That would be and this so is... bizarre, though. I mean, you're right. That's just insane to think that uh, they were they will count on... You know, basically, they're basically... It's almost like they're admitting that Maduro is that still that popular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because they just saw the results of the last election where they swept yeah. the fucking country. But it's rigged. Because of it's course all, all, all elections are rigged except for the you know election in the United States. And then this is, you know, the, I just cannot stand the hypocrisy considering what's going on in Honduras. It, it's horrifying. I mean, dozens of people have been killed, protesters, protesting um, this authoritarian incumbent, Hernandez, Juan Orlando Hernandez, that they, the U.S. came full force to back this guy, even though he fucking lost. He lost. Like, literally clear-cut clear as day it was the most bizarre thing this elect- electoral commission just like spent days like fucking around with all these votes and then they came back and we're like actually the results have changed <laughs> it was like one of the most ridiculous like kind of soft coups i've seen um you know we can't forget that in 2009 zelaya the left-leaning president manuel zelaya was kidnapped again by a u.s backed coup um shipped to costa rica this was hillary clinton praised in her book and was excited that she had a role in that coup um since that coup happened in 2009 the murder rates have skyrocketed drug rates all this shit in honduras has gone totally haywire um and so it's just it's just stunning that here we are 2018 try to do another democratic election to out this this crazy asshole and the u.s uh immediately recognizes this this fake commission saying no 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 no, he didn't lose um and and you know people are still protesting they're still out there in the streets this has been going on for i think over two months now damn i haven't seen one goddamn thing about this on the news and and can you know just consider the contrast with venezuela no it's so fascinating i mean it is so fascinating (sighs) sickens me you know, going back to Robert Perry for a second, um, his work on Elliot Abrams and sort of studying that character while at the State Department under the Reagan administration is crucial for understanding sort of the all the South American coups and the CIA involvement in South America, especially in the 80s. Um, and Elliot Abrams, uh, allegedly, um, again, we can't, we don't have a direct line necessarily showing that he is inside the Trump administration, but he was briefly considered to be Trump's main national security advisor when he, you know, eventually decided to go with McMaster. But Elliot Abrams is rumored to have the president's ear right now and is actually advising President Trump. Um, again, there's no 
pictures of them together. There's no written meetings that they've had, um, you know, since he's picked his national security head. But that's very worrisome because we could be getting a repeat of sort of the neocon, you know, crazy CIA neocon tandem um, activities that happened in the 1980s under the Reagan administration in South America. So I think people need to be very aware of that, that even if just one of these neocons starts whispering the president's ear, it really is enough to shift policy and really amp things up. I mean, look at John Bolton and his influence on Trump so far. I feel like a lot of this North Korea stuff is coming from him. It's so out of left field in a way that it feels like it's not even the typical DC neocon, you know, consensus class. You know, some of them are even acting nervous about the way Trump is dealing with North Korea, even though, as we've already talked about, if he did decide to do something, they'll all flip and, you know, kiss right. his ass. Right. But it is worrisome, you know, when you when you know that someone like Elliot Abrams, who had such a devastating impact on South America, is, is back advising a president right now. He's back, baby. Doesn't take long for these people to just be, reassert themselves into the dialogue, like Bill Crystal, David Frum, Elliot Tom Abrams. Cotton. All of a sudden, they're all yeah, Tom Cotton. I didn't. I, I I think I talked to you about this the other day, and you said I should bring this up on the podcast. Yeah, bring I it up. Talk to. about it. But Tom Cotton is a lot of mainstream reporters have identified him as a surrogate for Bill Crystal. That Bill Crystal's Bill Crystal pulled more more of his own money together approximately $2 million of funds that he raised um, through his different various think tanks in the Emergency Committee for Israel to fund Tom Cotton's senatorial run. And also, the Iran anti-Iran deal letter, the, even, the reason that even became a political talking point in the first place was because that was what Tom Cotton was deployed to do. His whole job as being Bill Crystal's puppet was to turn that into a political issue, which he did effectively. He even sucked Rand Paul into signing it. And it was basically a PNAC letter, but in the form of this is a letter written by, you know, Senator Tom Cotton. I'm going to pass this around to my other senators and colleagues in the in the House and Senate. But it was basically a PNAC letter done in that format. And what's interesting is low blog, I think it was Eli Clifton, who we've interviewed before on Media Roots, actually check out our interview we did with them a few months ago, um, a great resource on neocons also, basically found out, and he was even a little bit careful about the reporting, but Joe Crystal, allegedly Bill Crystal's son, the only reason I say allegedly is because Eli Clifton, I think, was sort of hesitant to outright say he was Bill Crystal's son because for some reason Bill Crystal hasn't mentioned really publicly that he has a son that's a veteran. You know, you would think a neocon would want to trumpet that and act like that's more respectable because he's not like a, you know, someone like, um, you know, these other politicians who are criticized for sending other people's kids into the military or into a war, but not their own. Apparently, Bill Crystal's own son served in Afghanistan. It kind of looks like a DC Doughboy version of uh, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I have to admit, he's kind of attractive, especially you know, being popped out of um, Bill Crystal's wife, Susan Crystal. Um, but what's bizarre about Joe Crystal is he is working directly underneath Tom Cotton, and he's his main like staffer in the Senate. So Joe Crystal is in the power, the corridors of of sort of the the Capitol building all the time, and that's I, I'm kind of fascinated just by that. 
But what makes it even more creepy is that apparently Mike Pompeo might still step down. And even as far back as maybe four months ago, when there was talk that he was going to step down, Tom Cotton was the main guy floated out there as being his replacement. And Tom Cotton actually has the ear of President Trump also. This is one senator that he's seen being very friendly with you know, since he's gotten in office, they have, they have developed a relationship. So imagine that Bill Crystal is there acting like Trump's biggest enemy. So that's what is so bizarre about it is now Joe Crystal, Bill Crystal's son is, um, you know, having some kind of influence over the president of the United States foreign policy decisions via Tom Cotton. Now, if Tom Cotton replaces Mike Pompeo as CIA director, that's going to be fucking nuts. Yeah, that's going to be To have a, Bill Crystal's really, puppet yeah. as a CIA director? Now, fucking hold on a second. I mean, that that that's interesting, you know, considering all this deep state versus Trump narrative. Right. But that could actually happen. And not only that, is it Joe Crystal will probably get a job under him. I mean, that's what's so bizarre about what's happening is even though Bill Crystal is getting retweeted by Hillary Clinton, he's still acting like Trump is the biggest embarrassment to the United States ever. They're, the neocons are creeping in. They're still having influence. Yeah. And just like Eric Prince, all of a sudden the deep state narrative won't apply as long as they support Trump. So once once his little son gets in the gets in the White House and once Tom Cotton gets in there, all of a sudden he's going to be anti deep state. According to these people, yeah, Joe Crystal, deep state, anti deep state warrior, <laughs> hero. Um, it's it is really really strange, um, you know, especially when you consider that Trump is a businessman and he seems really interested in getting all these weapons deals made for the defense contractors. So, in some ways, you know, he's. It's like the neocons can act like they hate him all they want, but that's how the neocons. That's their bread and butter, baby. Is that defense contractor money? So Trump, I mean, in some ways, Trump is almost cutting out the middleman. So that's like the only, and, and, and as, I mean, in a real way, that's really the only anti-neocon spirit that Trump is putting out there is like the cowboy diplomacy thing in and of itself from the, the White House, from the pulpit of the Oval Office. That's kind of, you almost don't need the neocons if you can catch a flame with that cowboy diplomacy, like the Bush era shit. You know, I mean, he did, Bush needed neocons on the outside too, but what I'm saying is just with that swagger and that fear mongering coming out of the White House itself, you can almost cut out some of these middlemen neocons Absolutely. from needing to sell the weapons, you know, needing to make pitches for weapon sales. If the oh, president yeah. could drum up all this fear about North Korea, then two missile alert systems go off in a row, coincidentally, you don't even need Robert Kagan to like write a whole think tank speech about North Korea. At that point, do you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Exactly. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's what Trump, again, back to Robert Perry, the, the, just the removal of the mask. Um, the neocons actually don't have to work as hard now. Um, Trump is just doing their bidding, um, you know, without them actually actively, you know, serving these roles in and out of the White House that we've been seeing. Usually there's like a veneer of difference or some sort of layer <laughs> between yeah. the defense contractors and the government position. And this time there's not. And um, that's good for these people. Yeah. Um, two really quick stories uh, just showing how disgusting the Democrats are. Um, this whole government shutdown theater, them trying to claim that they're going to throw, you know, DACA into this into this government budget bill. Um, first of all, this is going on the heels of them just acquiescing, giving Trump 
fucking $700 billion for defense last year, um, way more this year, FYI, 500 million of that was going to quote unquote deter Russian aggression, um, 200 million to fund Ukrainian rebels, 700 million for Israeli missile defense. Um, so don't fucking tell me that you're, um, in the resistance. Okay. So this whole DACA thing is totally fucking meaningless, uh, trivial bullshit where they were going to throw in this something for the dreamers knowing that the Republicans were to come back and like insert their own bullshit, which is exactly what they did. So they basically, if people weren't following this, um, the Democrats decided to do some bullshit spectacle um, to just try to like pander toward Latino voters. That's essentially what it was. They were like, we're going to, we're going to like not leave until you throw DACA in here. And Trump was just like, no, we're not going to do that. And in, and in fact, because you guys are doing this, we're going to actually hold chip hostage, which is the um, healthcare for children. Um, which they're removing because they're fucking psychotic pieces of shit. And so the Democrats were like, oh, okay, well, you guys win. So basically at the end of the day, the Republicans like reversed their little stunt and just held chip hostage instead. So the Democrats could cave and just accept everything. So it, it just seems so bizarre how bad they could be at actually negotiating. Like even on its face, it just makes no fucking sense. They could have easily said net neutrality, chip, DACA, and Medicare. And then if they just got one of them, it would have at least seemed not as horrible. But like this whole show was just for nothing. Um, it makes no sense unless they're actually like trying to lose. And, and someone brought this up to me the other day. They're like, they're literally getting paid to lose. And that's exactly what they're doing. Um, and when you look at this investigation from Lee Fang on The Intercept, um, he did it with some other guy, but they like interviewed a hundred progressive candidates across the country who were trying to run as Democrats and local primaries and local elections and stuff. And DNC officials every time would stonewall the fuck out of them, make them do Rolodex tests where they would actually confront these candidates and be like, okay, take out your phone right now. If, unless you have contacts in your phone that you can show me at this moment that can raise at least $250,000, you're dead to us and we're not going to support you. So this is actually people who have lost even Hillary Clinton before. Like that's how much they don't care that these people are losing candidates because all they care about is the corporate funds funneling into the main base. Um, it's vile. It's disgusting. It really just shows that as much as people want to cry about reforming the Democratic Party and taking it over, it ain't going to happen, baby. This is who the Democrats are. This is the party. We simply don't have representation. We can't have representation. Like This is what they will continue to do to anyone left of center. So I, I get the, the desire to try to like reform the system from the inside, but I don't see how many other stories need to come out that will prove to us that the Democrats will not allow that to happen. They will not allow it to happen. And going back to that Princeton study proving that the U.S. is in fact an oligarchy, there is a cap of 30% chance of anything passing if it, let's say a hundred percent of the american electorate want something to be passed like net neutrality or medicare for all there's only a 30 percent chance of that passing despite the fact that a hundred percent of americans want it why because our fuck we don't live in a democracy we live in a fucking oligarchy where corporations control and write everything it goes back to the whole weaponizing of transparency under capitalism um the fact that we think that transparency and we think that the way that our Congress votes like gives us the leverage to hold them accountable. Not at all. Um, not at all. In fact, it's just made it easier to bribe them from the corporations. Um, there was this law back in 1973 that, that basically allowed Congress to vote transparency 
transparently for the first time on the on the House floor. And before that, lobbyists were kept in the lobby. That's why they were called lobbyists. So they weren't actually involved in the process before. And so they didn't actually know how Congress people voted. Therefore, they couldn't bribe them and say, okay, we're not going to pay you next time, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but now they knew. And so instead of us holding these people accountable for the way they were voting, all of a sudden the lobbyists were holding them accountable for not voting in their interests. And so you see all these charts. It's like inequality skyrockets, lot, the amount of lobbyists skyrockets, all the money and campaign finances, like all skyrockets since this one law went in place. And it's just, it's just stunning. I mean, obviously like transparency isn't the problem. It's the fact that we live in an oligarchy. And so having the illusion of transparency is what placates us to accept our fucking servitude, whether it be body cameras on cops, whether it be the way Congress votes um, it's a fascinating theory that this guy put out there. I'm going to try to interview him because he's actually getting death threats and stuff because his whole thing is like transparency has been used against us. And people don't like to hear that because we want to believe that we have the power in this system. And, and unfortunately, I think time and again, it's, it's proven the opposite. Um, agreed with everything you said. And, uh, isn't that interesting though, that it's like the, that we didn't used to know how Congress voted before yeah. that. And like I, even presidents and shit. It's very, very bizarre. I, I had no idea that was even the case. I mean, this is coming off the new Oxfam study where the world's richest 1% took siphoned 82% of all new wealth in 2017. So already we knew that, um, you know, it was 42 individuals owning half the world's wealth and then it became like six. And now we're just kind of seeing how this works every year where Trump can boast that the economy is growing and flourishing. What he's not saying is that that economic growth is basically activity among the 1%, the top 1% of society who's just spending like an inordinate lavish amount on like private jets, yachts, like God knows what else they're capping. They're basically counting that spending as economic growth and averaging it throughout the entire society. So if you actually remove the the top 1% in terms of like spending and wealth transfer and spending transfer and consumerism and shit, it's like stunning. Um, the economy is doing horribly. Um, and, and I didn't know before that unemployment is actually only counted for people who have filed for unemployment benefits. So God knows what these true numbers are. Um, it's really fascinating when you see just how manipulative like the rhetoric is of pretending like, oh, the economy is doing well and all these Trump assholes just like see someone say it, and they're like, actually, it's doing good because well, um, they just have no profits, idea how this works. Yeah. It's I mean, if the stock market is doing great and corporate profits are going up, that's all they're talking about. You know, when he talks about like when he's getting that stupid argument with Jay Z talking about how black unemployment's like its lowest level in what however many years or whatever, like as you said, I mean, it's hard to really track those figures, but more importantly, that's really in the sense that corporate profits are going up and Trump is making it better for them. That's true. So that's what the propaganda is going to be, and at a certain point. You know, this whole idea that the deep state and, and, you know, um, is is gunning for Trump. I mean, at a certain point, it's like the oligarchy and the corporatocracy that really runs the world. Um, if Trump is, is good for them, then he's no. I mean, then it doesn't matter. 
Like this whole yeah. idea of like Obama holdovers, even if Mueller finds something, you know, if he's if he's doing great for for the world in that sense, for the corporate world and for the richest people, then they're going to try to find a way to keep him in there. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it, just stunning. It is stunning. Um, um, so yeah, the, the the top one percent, their obscene purchases, is basically what Trump is using to to pretend like all of us are doing great economically. And speaking of of absurd purchases, Steve Wynn. A oh, close yeah. personal friend of Trump's, the chairman financier of the GOP itself, casino mogul billionaire, uh, was accused of basically rape and serial sexual harassment and sexual assault for like decades. Yeah. He was even doing crazy old man gross shit, like wearing super short shorts, like Daisy Duke type shorts, walking around the casino with his fucking balls hanging out and shit. The only reason I brought him up is you're talking about absurd purchases. Steve Wynn sold for over 130 million dollars to picasso on some at some auction you know because these assholes probably all they just can't think of any other way to spend their money they buy a 130 million dollars from somebody who i consider you know one of the biggest hack modern art artists of the 20th century but just to make a long story short he was he's such a an idiot um you know frivolous uh total like sloppy billionaire that he had like a party at his house where he wanted to display the Picasso for his party guests. And while talking excitedly to one of his party guests about the painting, his elbow went through the painting. He broke his own <laughs> fucking painting and the guy, the guy wouldn't buy it after that. Obviously he has a, he has a, I, I, I don't even know what the hell it is. It's a Je- Jeff Koons is also one of these like hack modern artists who just basically appropriate other people's art and then just make a big statue out of it and somehow call it his. Uh-huh. Like there's fucking um, Popeye the Sailor Man in the Wynn Casino. It's a giant ass gaudy as fuck Popeye, like all fucking Technicolor. And it's like goddamn $50 million and it's a Jeff Koons statue. I'm like, how did you like buy the rights of Popeye and then like just make this? I mean, you didn't, you obviously didn't even make it. You probably just had yeah. people make it in your studio. I just makes no sense to me, but it made me hate Steve Wynn more that he would actually think that that was like good enough to display as the main piece of art. Totally. What actually makes me kind of like respect John Podesta slightly more for like being into like <laughs> creepy, weird ass like uh, art. <laughs> like because it's like at least he's not buying like 130 million dollar picassos but he probably couldn't afford it anyways queuing on dude um yeah. i wanted to say one more really quick thing about daca that i didn't is that it took obama six years to actually pass daca and it was just a, a an executive order so people who want to you know give democrats all this praise for all they do for immigrants and latinos and stuff i mean that's that's how long it took for him to even throw some some pittance to Latino voters. And this was after they like actually targeted direct harassment and on occupations of democratic legislators offices and shit, because they were like, okay, you guys aren't doing anything. I guess we have to actually like occupy your offices now. And then finally um, they did that. So, you know, we, we should remember the history of these things. Um, everyone wants to praise Obama as doing all these great things. No, I mean, he deported more people than any other president. Trump's definitely on board to deport more, but let's not, Let's not lionize these leaders. Let's understand how we got here. Um, like Robert exactly. Perry said, the removal of the mask. The, I was just going to say that the, the removal of the mask is important, especially in this instance, because when Obama was deporting all these people, he was doing a very good job of doing it in secret. And it was actually interesting because it seemed like somebody who was compassionate towards sort of the plight of illegal immigrants 
leaked a picture of that holding pen for all the illegal immigrant children that were rounded up. Do you remember seeing that photo that leaked towards the end of the Obama administration? It was a very disturbing photo that you don't see very often where it was like, basically, it wasn't a jail cell, but it probably was the equivalent one. They were locked inside of a room with, it looked like some kind of gulag with children, like 30 children stacked in this tiny room together with like no room to move around or anything. And that leaked from someone who was probably like an ICE official who probably was like extremely upset that this was going on. Not that these kids were sneaking in, that they were being held in such a way. You know, that was what was happening there during the Obama administration. There was this mask that was very effectively put on where ICE were probably told not to be cowboys. They're probably, this is the thing that Trump promised, you know, when his, on his first major speech, his inauguration speech, the return of law and order. He wants these law enforcement agencies to get flashy and to have the jackboot mentality. Yeah, he wants those and, Gestapo forces out in the streets. Like they said, our job's fun now. I know. Yeah, exactly. Including the DEA. Um, but especially organizations like ICE, because Trump, that was his main thing. Since he's not going to build the wall, he's not. Ice and having them act flashy and do these PR stunts is to him that's that's more important. I think. Yeah, and I bet you, I bet you, this is also why all of a sudden no more deaths, the most innocuous group ever. It, it kind of reminds me of in Fahrenheit 9/11 when that little peacenik group was infiltrated by a cop. <laughs> it's like all they did was make cookies and just kind of knit, and then they Which realized is just that such they had an, an interesting informant. story because they yeah. only found out he was a cop. After they read an obituary about a guy who died in a motorcycle accident, a cop, and then like, oh my God, wait, that's a different named guy, but that's the picture of the guy who was in our anti-war yeah. group. Yeah. So assume, assume there's a spook in every anti-war group that's legitimate. But I mean, I think that it just goes back to this no more death story. I mean, Mike and I um, went with no more deaths in this documentary that we did called The Empire's War on the Border that I really encourage everyone to check out if you really want to understand how fucked up our immigration system already was back from when Clinton instated this. Um, there's a natural border. There's a reason why there's not a wall on the natural border because hundreds of people die there um, almost every year. That's how many people are dying trying to cross this natural terrain. So this group No More Deaths, which we walked with into the desert, leaves water and supplies for migrants and refugees who are fleeing death or you know uncertain circumstances that they feel the need to risk their lives to try to come here to save themselves, save their family, have a chance at living. Um and, uh, and, you know, and, and they die in the desert. Um, and so that's what this group does. It, it leaves water for them, like really just the most basic thing for human survival. And so these Gestapo jackboot Nazi cops, border patrol, go and destroy all the water or poison it, actually. Um, they've actually done that too. They've actually made like a, this one immigrant could drink liquid meth and he died. Um, like as a joke, they just made him drink a whole bottle of liquid meth and he died and no one was held accountable for that. So, so the border patrol, I think is a unique form of cop because this is like sadistic beat to the point where you're like, you're just going and destroying like the lifeblood for the most vulnerable people in the world. I mean, people who are just like crawling across the desert. Did survive. you see that video that leaked a compilation of all the Oh, time? yeah. Well, we already had that in our War on the Border documentary. 
Yeah. All that footage. Yeah. So there's footage of them s- slamming into the water bottles, throwing them, kicking them, pouring them out, laughing, harassing these people in this group. No more deaths. Eight activists have been charged with federal crimes. Yeah. Federal crimes. And and even this is actually true. If you are, you don't even have to be in one of these groups. So that's not bad enough. If you live on the border and you put out water because you know that like there's a you know an a pathway for like people to cross the border near your place you could also be arrested for that i just thought of something that shows you how just despicable everything is is that when the fires <laughs> were happening people were like leave out the water for the animals and everyone was like if there's one thing you can do leave the water outside because animals are all going to be fleeing the fires and and like the news was telling you to do that but no not humans not humans fleeing for their lives you're going to get well, fucking arrested and charged with a federal crime this is totally, totally uh, not a little bit of a tangent from what you just said, but I read a really fascinating, uh, rarely do I still find like interesting, you know, fascinating articles about nature because I'm so distracted by politics, but there's a bird, a hawk oh, yeah. um, in I Australia that. that was recently observed spreading wildfire on its own to catch prey. Because a lot of the times when there is a wildfire, birds will sort of hover near the area where a lot of like the smaller critters are trying to escape the fire because it's like a feeding frenzy for them. They can just pick off a bunch of small creatures at once. But there's actually a footage that was recorded of this one bird spreading embers intentionally to try to like encircle prey. Um, Yep. So I don't know if uh, animals are learning from us. They know what they're doing. But it's... Pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. It's really, really fascinating. I just wanted to read one stat. Last year, 32 human remains were found just in um, the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge. So that's just, you know, a portion of the desert. Um, and Border Patrol agents, when this report from No More Deaths came out, they really documented how many times the water is vandalized, et cetera, et cetera. Basically twice a week, on average is when the border patrol will go and do a, a wide sweep and then just like either destroy the water. Um, and sometimes even these, these people who aren't even border patrol, just like total, um, you know, just, just assholes operating on their own who hate like immigrants. Minute men, will go out there. Yeah, minute men. They'll go out and then just draw skull and crossbones on the water to just fuck with migrants who are like so dehydrated and they come up and then they think, Oh, this, this is poison. Um, it so it's all so- just, Yeah. It's so fucked up because it just shows such a lack of human, just base level human compassion. Like even if you hate the idea of illegal immigration and you don't want any, you know, people to come into our country illegally and that's your main thing. If someone's stranded in the desert, what are they going to do? Turn around and try to go back if they, if that water's gone, you're literally causing, exacerbating someone's potential death. I mean, it is exactly. It's it is absolutely insane. So check it out. This whole Trump's whole rhetoric on immigration just makes so little sense when you realize uh, just how deadly and, and unreasonable our immigration policy is, and just how many people die trying to get over here, um, and who these people are. Um, please check it out. Another story that we can wrap up the podcast with. It's kind of a trifecta. Alex Jones calling for martial law. QAnon, <laughs> pedo, gate, uh, mass arrests, and Chelsea Manning um, uh, parting with the alt-right. 
so let's wrap up the podcast by kind of just talking about first we'll start with Chelsea Manning um probably everyone saw this story that first it came out that she attended Cernovich's big ball in New York the other week Cernovich you know these assholes have a party 50 doughboys show up and three women in grandma dresses and somehow every fucking news reporter's there embedded waiting to report on it yet they always miss the boat and somehow make it seem like it's a good event and once they found out that Chelsea Manning was there, they basically turned the news story into how these people are cool and tolerant toward trans people. It's the most fascinating thing. It's like they just continue to flub up this whole thing, unless it's just totally purposeful that they're like trying to normalize this entire group of social media grifter white nationalist people. Well, that's the question, isn't it? It's like, are some of these reporters friendly to the alt-right like Olivia Newsy and they sort of pretend that they're like centrists or that they're more Mm -hmm. on the liberal side. And are they writing puff pieces for that reason? Or is there sort of an intentional signal boosting of the alt-right negative or positive in the mainstream media in order to make it seem like a lot of these issues that the alt-right are siphoning from the left, from people like us are only alt-right issues, like not like no regime change in Syria. And and seeing Chelsea Manning, there was a perfect opportunity for them to prove that horseshoe theory correct. They're like, well, Chelsea Manning's here because she's anti-establishment too. Exactly. And they, of course, jumped on it like that. The Demo and of course, you know, mainly like Democrat neoliberal people who jumped on that the hardest at first and trying to basically associate her with Julian Assange using Julian Assange's shift sort of to the ideological right as sort of evidence that she's also part of that too. It is interesting that Chelsea Manning hasn't really talked about Julian Assange since getting out of prison. Um, I'd like to, you know, I've always bring on up this point. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am still obsessed with this. I think it's still an important issue. I still want to know how she feels about WikiLeaks um, not releasing the second video that she risked her freedom for. She did release not the, just collateral murder, but another second video showing an Obama era airstrike that killed over 130 civilians in Afghanistan. And I haven't seen her talk about that. Frankly, I feel like it needs to be addressed because I, and also, is she happy with the way WikiLeaks leaked her stuff? There's still a lot of questions, I think. And I'm not saying like, we need to like grill Chelsea Manning for answers on all these intricacies. I just mean, I don't really know a lot, very much about her, how she feels about WikiLeaks now, what her politics are in terms of all these different foreign policy issues that have popped up since she's been in prison. And I would like to know, I know sort of her general stance on she wants universal income. She has some socialist positions that seem good, but in terms of a lot of the issues that I spend most of my time focusing on, it's still a mystery box to me that makes me nervous in and of itself. So to see her going to this party and then not really having a good explanation for it. And then also sort of, not accurately talking about what she had done. And let's let's explain, let's explain what, because we didn't actually explain that. So after the party and you know, who these people are, you know, that they thrive on attention. That's literally all they do. Um, Cernovich was even laughing about this days after saying, I cannot believe the media publicity that I got from this party. He's like, he's just laughing about how much, how many tens of thousands of dollars he made on hits from all these mainstream media people signal boosting the fuck out of him. Um, and what it turned into was Chelsea Manning going to this party, claiming it was claiming she went there to crash it. Um, but unfortunately, what came out of it was a series of articles making these people seem tolerant towards trans people and like 
cool because you know if chelsea manning goes to the party well they must be fucking cool right um and you know we're talking about a party that had a headliner of stefan molyneux who literally runs a therapy cult blaming women for fucking everything um and then gavin mcginnis a lead misogynist douchebag who goes on several transphobic rants in every comedy special he does um so well he just let's just sorry he i just wanted to make sure He's not a comedian and he's never really released an actual special. He's a wannabe <laughs> fucking comedian who thinks that New York comedians think he's cool. He thinks they're his bro, but they all fucking, you can tell they think he's kind of a ta- untalented fucking douchebag. Yeah, and he has like, he just goes on these rant, YouTube rants talking about how he doesn't have any friends anymore because of Trump. Um, but, but so that was odd in of itself like the whole chelsea manning going to the party claiming she was crashing it it didn't seem like she was it seemed like she was there and also it seemed like she didn't have her plan yet like it didn't seem like she had it gamed out like if you're gonna go crash it and confront these people you think that you'd have like a strategy to like get out before the news cycle and all this shit Uh um and then it comes out instead that the opposite was true that you know she had been hanging out with these people for months and months doing game nights with the guy from gateway pundit who if you don't know who gateway pundit is like an even more outrageously conspiratorial right-wing blog than breitbart i didn't even know who they were when i originally saw this but i saw a story pop up on drudge one day that just immediately seemed blatantly fake to me on its face saying that people were chanting Allahu akbar at some press conference where like a guy was murdered via beheading oh yeah that oh yeah i remember you talking about that and so gateway pundit was the one the source of the story so i went to their website and i was like this is a completely fake story and i just exposed it by basically finding out that what one of the gateway pundits favorite techniques and they still do it sometimes they used to do it all the time was they would have all these sleeper sock puppet twitter accounts that they would use to just as a source for information about an event or something and then they would they would uh, emoliate them after they would run the story so they would take screenshots of the twitter account and then embed them for like maybe 48 hours and then and then blow up the twitter account Oh, yeah, no, totally. And they actually had multiple Twitter accounts that would do this with, with Google, um, sorry, reverse image lookup images that were stock images of like rednecks, stock photo image libraries. Mm. So these are like a gay, older gay guy and his like twink boyfriend running a conspiracy right wing website where they're literally using stock photos of like dumb looking trucker redneck guys for fake sock puppet Twitter. That's to how, run that's fake how low they think of their audience. Yeah. It's imp- that's actually how kind dumb of they impressive. think you are. It's kind That's of how impressive. Dumb they think you are. Oh, it's impressive because they're charlatans, they're con artists, they're very good at what they do. That's how they have a fucking office front in DC. But this guy Lucian's wallpaper in his house says deport your local illegal. Um, I wouldn't be able to be in a room with these people. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be able to go to this guy's house. Let's just say that. I wouldn't be able to go and play Cards Against Humanity with with Lucian from Gateway Pundit. So I think when all these photos came out and it became clear that it wasn't just the party, it wasn't just this, it, it was kind of a long uh, relationship that she had cultivated with multiple personalities on the alt-right. And when this all came out, her whole thing was that she was really spying on them because of Charlottesville and and the Heather Hayer death. Well, that's what she that said. doesn't really add up to me because they're not the same groups of people, let's be honest. I guess it was just kind of hurtful to see that these are the people that she chooses to be in communication with and hanging out with constantly um, instead of people who legitimately share her worldview and really would want to cultivate her um, leadership and and, well, and Senate race and help what is her, her and, you know, but I'm. 
but but I, I don't know. I, and I think that someone who just got tortured for seven years in prison, we shouldn't expect them to be like an ideologue or a thought leader or a movement leader at that. I think that's unfair to put that weight on her. However, you know, when someone runs for Senate, it, then they are putting themselves in that position. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. But I, my biggest takeaway is I think that it's it's unfair to ascribe this hero worship to anyone. She's she's definitely a hero. She did an incredibly heroic thing and she sacrificed seven years of her life to get tortured for releasing war crimes to us. She was originally facing what, over 30 oh, years? Oh, 35. Yeah. So it I don't know. Really I, guess, dis- I guess, what do you think? I mean, and, and I wanted to pose this to our viewers. Like, what yeah, do you wh- think about the whole Chelsea Manning thing? What do you guys think? There are some DM conversations and I was tweeting about this. I don't want to go into too much detail about it because I don't want to give too much publicity to these people, but just, you know, Cernovich was actually DMing with Chelsea Manning kind of in a similar vein to her DMing with Adrian Lamo as early as uh, December. And, and, and he released her, the conversations because she came out and said, I was spying on these people. And he released the conversations to show how friendly the tone was between the two of them. I think Mike Cernovich is a piece of shit, but I'm in a way I'm glad he did that because I want to know what's really going on here. And other people who had conversations with her from that same scene as well, you know, released conversations showing similar tone and a similar trying to trying to patch up the PR after the fallout of being revealed. Gavin McGinnis actually went on a podcast and said she's a traitor because she was our friend. He was going through a list of people she was friends with, he claimed, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in his little world. So... There is more stuff out there, more than what meets the eye. That Daily Beast piece that's trying to oversimplify it by saying Chelsea, no, Chelsea Manning is not an alt-right Nazi or whatever. I, we're not accusing her of that. I'm not. I posed this question on Twitter. People were thinking that's what was my accusation was. I wasn't making that accusation. I just think we deserve answers. And unfortunately, she has run for political office. And I think once you cross that line, hero worship is no longer an option. I, I think, I mean, because I'm not saying that what she did wasn't heroic. I strongly think that it was, but I do think that it's totally fair to scrutinize people, especially running when they're running for office like that. Mm-hmm. It's just the optics are so catastrophically bad. And at the end of the day, it just served as multiple propaganda coups for these people, because again, giving them enormous amounts of publicity, legitimacy and normalizing them, which is ultimately the most dangerous thing. That's the unfortunate takeaway, of course, other than, you know, painting these people as somehow like legitimate political, like thought people instead of just opportunistic hacks. And so again, just giving them legitimacy as actual people who you should be taking seriously. It was very disappointing to me. And especially because I haven't heard about her reaching out to any like anti-imperialist figures on the left in a similar way. And I'm not saying by going to infiltrate them and spy on them. I mean, just having friendly DM chats with them, as she did with Mike Cernovich. So that is troublesome. I don't understand that. Yeah, I want to yeah, hear what, more. I yeah. want to hear her go on like a podcast that's sort of anti-imperialist and ta- have an in-depth conversation about stuff. A lot of people have been silent on it because, of course, you don't want to just pile on this criticism of, of Chelsea after, you know, she's the subject of torture. That's how she's fucking famous. Um, so it's really important to just kind of, you know, take a step back. And, and so I don't, I didn't want to do that, but it's also, like you said, I mean, when someone's running for public office, I think this is, it's a fair thing to talk about. You know, these same people 
that we're talking about, these alt-right opportunistic hacks, also peddle the QAnon thing, which we briefly mentioned in the last podcast, this fucking anonymous shit poster on 4chan claiming to be a deep state insider and people just lap it up. Yeah, he's claiming not just a deep state insider, but he has White House level uh, classified access. And one of the points of evidence that people use to claim that he's really in the White House or something is a photo that he allegedly took from Air Force One um, on some kind of flight path that Air Force One was actually on. And all these four channers, you know, um, did some research to prove that he really was on Air Force One or something at that time that he said, um, which is bizarre because let's say if that was true, wouldn't that be like, well, wait a second, then this is a controlled opposition, like op being ran out of the White House. Like, it's interesting to me that no one's going in that direction with it. They're just all thinking that this is a guy who knows that the deep state's about to run a coup on Trump and that it's all like legit and, and, and it's like secret, you know, coded information. It's such a bizarre narrative that's being spun. Yeah. And then you have, but, you have Roger Stone wearing a giant cartoonish beret, um, looking like a little like French bread salesman on Infowars talking about how Gitmo is being cleared the fuck out for pedo masters. It's just, I, I is this real life? I don't know if anybody's paid attention to this release the memo campaign by the Republican Party, but this was the moment that I scarily felt that QAnon crossed into a main crossed the threshold of being mainstream, where I actually ended up in out of frustration calling in a serious XM comedy radio show where one of the right wing hosts, this comedian Nick DiPaolo, was going on and on about the deep state and how they need to release the memo and how they're coming after Trump. The deep state's going to take out Trump. They might kill him. So I called in and I was just like, you know, you're throwing around this term, the deep state. It traditionally never meant like Obama holdovers or people who dislike, you know, Republicans or anything like that. It means this very specific thing. Please don't throw around the term, you know, out of just frustration, I had to call in to, to, to say this because once I heard that, I was like, wow, this is actually going to sort of a more mainstream area than I thought that it would. Because even though this guy is right wing, he never, normally wouldn't be talking about the deep state. So right after I called into that show, I, I heard on the news, I understood why he was talking about it. Because on the news, uh, a guy went on the Jake Tapper show, I believe a congressman, and I don't know his name off the top of my head, but you can look it up on YouTube, went on the Jake Tapper show and said that he didn't just say that the deep state is coming for Trump based on what this memo actually says. He said that he had a source that told him that the deep state is going to kill Trump. And he didn't say it in those exact words, but he did say, I mean, he did say that on the Jake Tapper show. And Jake Tapper was like, what source is this? Who's telling you this? And when I saw that clip, I was thinking, is he talking about QAnon? Like, or does he actually mean like someone physically approached him like mm-hmm. a source or emailed him? What is he talking about? I have a f- weird feeling he's talking about QAnon. And it wouldn't surprise me if an actual congressman was at this point talking about QAnon because Matt Drudge, the president himself, Alex Jones and Roger Stone, well, Alex Jones and Roger Stone have directly been telling people to go to QAnon. Lionel of Lionel Nation, a former truther, is now constantly talking about QAnon. He's actually going on RT, which I was pretty shocked that RT was still booking him to talk about QAnon. David Seaman, 
Pizzagate, oh uh, the Pizzagate King is now constantly talking about QAnon. Some of his videos are getting the most hits. I mean, this, these total charlatans are buying into and spreading and, and repeating over their own loud megaphones this controlled opposition QAnon narrative um, that basically just appears to be a fail-safe wish-fulfillment narrative to prevent people from being disappointed in Donald Trump. But what's weird is it's setting itself up for like extreme disappointment because it's promising that Trump is going to round up all the pedophiles uh, and send them to Guantanamo Bay but or Robbie, round up all the Pizzagate, Pedogate pedophiles like Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and send them to get But Robbie, I, what I realized uh, really sadly is that it won't ever disappoint anyone because they're always going to find something else to justify that it is happening and ra- and somehow make up and construct this fake narrative that it is. And, and I've already encountered this three separate times with people who believe in the QAnon thing. They just kept sending me different articles of different pedo busts and nothing, no facts mattered. It didn't matter when these pedo busts happened. Some of them were even like when Obama was in office. Pedo busts. And or some (laughs) Europol investigation had nothing to do with the US. And they still were just like, see, like Trump is doing this. So I think that and for, I mean, as much as I would like to agree with you that this, after the State of the Union happens and we don't see a mass arrest of corporate CEO pedo masters into Guantanamo, they're just going to say it's still happening and send you a bunch of bullshit articles that don't mean anything. And then if you debunk those like I did, then they'll just say, well, what about the Instagram? It just all, it's like, okay, well, you can't debunk the crazy photos. I win. Let me just dive into this, the, the newest news that's happened with QAnon that I predicted and we predicted and mix in with um, uh, Alex Jones too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so basically what happened was the QAnon narrative culminates with this desire to, um, that to protect against the deep state trying to take out Trump um, because Trump is going to round up all these elite pedophiles. Apparently basically Trump needs to implement martial law temporary military control QAnon says and I've actually been testing the waters and arguing with these people who believe the QAnon narrative and saying aren't you concerned about martial law that Trump's going to do have to do martial law and they're like no that's maybe what we need to like stop the left to stop the deep state you know because it's interchangeable now it's like it doesn't even matter it's the deep state it's the left because the left is the deep state apparently that's the democrats of the deep state yeah Robbie they're only going to arrest the bad people yeah. The people who are the Antifa terrorists and the pedo masters. So that all, it all culminates with that really scary narrative. And at first I kind of laughed it off and thought, wow, some clever hoaxer on 4chan has managed to troll Alex Jones and Infowars fans in this long con into trolling them into wanting martial law. Something that Alex Jones used to be like the king of warning of us about martial law happening in the United States. That's a brilliant troll job. And then when I saw that Matt Drudge was dog whistling to it, when I saw that Trump himself was dog whistling to it by retweeting an account called Magapill, which when you go to the Magapill Twitter account, it's all QAnon, every single fucking tweet. When I found that out, I got really scared and thinking, wow, this is not just a troll job. This is something scarier. And very recently, just in the last week, Alex Jones has actually been calling for the military to arrest Trump protesters and to arrest people on the left. He wants military control. He's actually not just spreading the QAnon narrative now. He is calling for some kind of police state scenario. Um, and there's and actually, Robbie, when I brought that up, someone was like, but, but Abby, the protesters are calling for the death of the president. So if, shouldn't you support martial law to mass arrest protesters? So fucking nuts, dude. 
so there is a salon.com article and, and most of their shit's been bad for a while, but this is actually a pretty decent one. It's called the far right media pundits are now calling for a police state. Some of Trump's critics feared he might become a dictator on the radical right. His fans are now hoping he will. So it goes through basically these several examples. And Vic Berger actually did a really good job editing together this Alex Jones clip where he calls for military arrest of Trump critics, people on the left and Trump protesters. You go to rallies in Austin, L.A., New York. Almost every person we talked to said, we're getting guillotines ready. We're going to kill conservatives. We're going to kill Trump and his family. We're going to kill you. They're going to guillotine everybody and have a communist utopia. And they're all nodding. We're going to kill the conservatives and the Christians. We're going to kill them. And, th and these are marches with hundreds of thousands of people nodding their head. We're going to kill you. Now, they're obviously not going to kill anybody. But they are on board for it. They are scum of the earth. We have hardcore real authoritarianism here that wants to overthrow the country and that wants to arrest and torture and kill its opposition. As far as I'm concerned, the safest thing to do would just to be have Trump just go ahead and have the army go ahead and arrest these people. That, that's all. And we're in a red, red alert right now. We had to have the army just arrest these people. And I guarantee you, George Washington, if stuff like this was going on, would go arrest the people that were doing it. This also goes into how Sebastian Gorka um, wants us to treat uh, some of the Trump protesters like the Rosenbergs, um, which were the people who were put up on treason charges in the 50s. And also Judge Janine, that crazy Trump sycophant on Fox News, is also calling for similar stuff. So I feel like they're all being dog-whistled by QAnon, but they're like being driven into the, more into this frenzy um, where they're like wa openly wanting now some kind of like actual civil war with the str the hand of the government on their side to crush the left. And that's really, I didn't realize they had gotten themselves this amped up this quickly. Like, yeah, you and I hate, you know, with a passion, some of these people on the right. I don't think we realize the frenzy they've gotten themselves into. This emotional frenzy they just amped themselves into. It's so it's almost like alien to I can me say that I would never you. support martial law um, or any sort of uh, repression, state repression against my political opponents. So that I guess that's just a, you know, a diff, a little bit of a diff. Yeah. So, I mean, now Alex Jones, the king of warning us about martial law, is now calling for martial law. That's actually happening now. And with sort of being having the ear of the president also and sort of being pals with him. That's super dangerous scenario. So imagine what would happen if Trump got impeached. Alex Jones could just say it was the deep state. You know, if he got impeached over something having to do with Russia, it would be sort of an unfair, you know, I would, I would yeah. be very skeptical if something like that happened. Yeah. So I could see, you know, a dangerous pathway here already with this sort of this frenzy that they've driven themselves into. And it's, it's scary. And I, and I really do think, Alex Jones and Infowars has become more dangerous. I've just never realized it would reach this level this quickly. Oh, yeah. Tens of millions of people being led astray to think that Trump is an anti-establishment uh, hero who's about to be ousted and uh, basically being conditioned to say we need to die for the president. I mean, it's it's really like, I mean, it's just funny. And then, and then Alex Jones has the audacity to like make fun of Kim Jong-un <laughs> in North Korea. You know? I mean, it's like cartoonish. And I, I just, I just think we need to take it very seriously. Yeah, and, and just I, if I, anyone still listens to Alex Jones and takes him seriously, just talk to them about it because uh, it is. I mean, I just don't know how anyone could be really be helped if if they really care about war or human rights or 
human beings. <laughs> um, but you know, it's worth a shot. Uh, and don't forget to pick up your local flamethrower. Elon Musk is putting on the market. I guess, you know, it's either spaceships oh, and colonizing Mars or creating flamethrowers. So good job, Elon, um, in the land of mass shootings. This is definitely what society needs the most. What the it's fuck a- is this? 500 bucks. Buy your local flamethrower. He's just such an market. attention whore. I mean, it's just like Crazy. if Nikola Tesla were alive, he would fucking hate him. God. Nikola Tesla rolls in his grave every time that asshole tweets. It's <laughs> it's disgusting. You know, oh, I mean, man. I don't know if did he pay off the estate of Nikola Tesla? Why is he just shitting all over his grave like this? I don't know. This brilliant scientist, like creative scientist. Like it shouldn't, you shouldn't, a corporation should not be allowed to like use the name of someone like that. It's just disgusting to me. Anyways, <laughs> thank you so like much, everyone. We're really curious of what you think about a bunch of stuff. Um, and and thank you so much for listening to the tribute for for Robert Perry. Definitely give a shout out to Consortium News, his son, um, and his colleagues. And um, you know, let us know what you think. Also on the SoundCloud timeline, you can leave comments. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and, and donate to us on Patreon. It greatly helps us out. And thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, check out our Patreon page at Media Roots, or sorry, patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And uh, have a great day. I did not know Robert Parry personally, but I'm very familiar with the work he did regarding the Iran-Contra affair, the October surprise, as well as founding consortiumnews.com in 1995. He gave a voice to many prolific investigators over the years. I especially appreciate him giving a voice to veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. He will be missed, even by those who didn't know him personally. My name is John Gold.